7.03, and here we go. Monday night, time for Ira on Sports. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira not in studio. You know, he was hanging out at the Genesis Open in L.A. Uh, he's going to be calling in from there as well. Ira, usually we do a little bit of banter at the top of the show, but we can't today because we have a great guest, and he's on already. It's Dal Maxfield. Would you like to tell us a little bit about Dal? Well, Dow had a great uh, Major League Baseball career for the Cardinals and A's. He won four World Series titles for a, a shortstop, um, was a gold glove winner one of the years, and he went on to become the general manager of the Cardinals uh, for 10 years, and in two of those years it took him to the World Series. So it's someone who's pretty knowledgeable about the postseason and how to get teams, how to be a player on a team to get to the postseason, and how to be a general manager. Also, he was a coach, too, uh, and, and, and to get the teams to the postseason. Dal, thank you so much for joining us here on Ira on Sports. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, Ira's got a ton of questions for you about Manny Mikado, Bryce Harper. It's what everyone's talking about in baseball. But I've got a question about something that popped up today with uh, Rob Manfred, you know, defending the fact that teams are not tanking. So, you know, from someone who's been all throughout the business, do you think that it's a thing that, that some of the smaller market teams or even bigger market teams that just haven't had success would lose on purpose to try to gain, you know, draft picks? No, not there's not a chance of that happening, uh, Mike. The uh, uh, the uh, competition is too too tough. The uh, uh, desire of the players themselves uh, uh, wanting to win, wanting to do well. Nobody's going to uh, uh, try to lose uh, by any means. You just gotta you gotta go out there and do your best all the time. Or otherwise, you embarrass yourself. And uh, players aren't going to do that. So I, I don't buy into that. Uh, Everybody's looking for some reason to uh, 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 explain the situation, but th th I, I don't buy that argument at all. Yeah, Dal, I agree with you, and I think it's kind of crazy. It, it, your picks don't even pan. It's not like basketball or football where these guys are immediate impact players anyways. It's for down the line. I, I don't think teams are doing this. Um, but, you know, speaking of one of these bigger market teams that's had a lot of issues over the past, I don't know, basically since 1997, is the Miami Marlins uh, here in Florida. Can you make a case? I'm a Yankee fan, love Derek Jeter, but can you make a case for what he's doing uh, with this franchise, trying to get them back on their feet? Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, uh, Derek's a pretty bright guy, number one, and his experience level is uh, as a winner over the years, over a lot of years, I might add, with the Yankees, uh, uh, does him well. You know, he's he's got a good idea what he needs to do. He, Sometimes when you're uh, uh, you're rebuilding, uh, there are a couple of years where things aren't uh, aren't fun. You're you're uh, always uh, trying new people, uh, bringing new people in, uh, maybe moving some of uh, your uh, older players out to make room for young people to let them develop and uh, teach them uh, to play together and and win together. And uh, I'm sure Derek, uh, uh, with his background. Uh, he, he knows what he's doing, and I hope the fans there in Miami uh, have a little bit of patience and let him uh, lead the, lead the, show them the way, really. Ira, what have you got for Dow? Dow, I'm sorry. Again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, big fan of yours, and we had, as you know, the West Palm Beach is the heart of, uh, of St. Louis country for at least a month now, where it seems like everybody has a St. Louis Cardinal uh, shirt on walking around town. Uh, great fan base, and maybe just touch on that a little bit about the fan support that the Cardinals have in St. Louis, and then of course down in West Palm Beach for spring training. Yeah, well, the Cardinal, um, you know, the the uh, Cardinal Nation in uh, not only in St. Louis but now uh, really all over Florida. You know, the Cardinals trained in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, for forty-five, fifty years before they went over to uh, Jupiter and in that area and. Uh, but the the uh, fan base in St. Louis is just terrific. They they love their baseball in St. Louis. It is definitely a baseball town. Uh, always has been. Uh, always will be. I know. Uh, when I uh, played there for many years, uh, uh, I was not much of a hitter. I tried, but I wasn't much of a hitter. But the fans were with me the whole way. They supported me and made me uh, feel like uh, I was uh, a, a fine hitter and all that, which I wasn't. But great fans, the best fan base uh, really in uh, in baseball, I believe. Well, you're, you're selling yourself a little short. You you uh, certainly were the key shortstop on four World Series champions. 
Um, but tell tell me about in terms of uh, playing. You both played for St. Louis and played with Bob Gibson and played on that team, and then you went to the A's and played on the great A's teams with Reggie Jackson and Joe Rudy and those. Uh, in terms of being in the '60s and the '70s with those just amazing teams. What was there any similarities, differences between uh, those four World Series champions? You had two with St. Louis and two with Oakland. Yeah, there was uh, there's a great deal of similarity. Uh, they both had a lot of talent. Um, <laughs> you know that's that's the main ingredient you need to uh, end up in postseason play. And uh, those two ball clubs definitely had that. You mentioned Gibson. There was. Uh, Tim McCarver and Brock and Shannon and Flood and Maris and Cepeda and Javier and uh, just a, a real fine uh, uh, starting lineup. And we had uh, uh, just a real good ball club the whole way. And out in Oakland, uh, you mentioned a couple of the stars there and Reggie and uh, Bert Campaneras, Catfish Hunter, Joe Rudy, uh, Sal Bando, just, just outstanding players. Uh, and uh, during that whole stretch, Really, uh, both teams, uh, the Cardinals, uh, there in the late 60s and, and Oakland in the, uh, early 70s, uh, in addition to having great talent, uh, they had very, very good health. Didn't have too many serious injuries to key personnel that, uh, uh, really hurts a real good ball club or it hurts any club really, but in order to, uh, march throughout a, 162 game schedule and get into the playoffs and World Series. You've got to be uh, good. You got to be lucky uh, to uh, have good health. And uh, both of those teams had uh, both of those uh, factors uh, in in the late 60s and uh, early 70s with Oakland. Well, and you were the general manager of the Cardinals from '84 to '94, and you were just probably at the beginning where the whole analytics. Uh, started coming in in terms of just looking at in terms of the uh, statistical analysis of baseball and who do, and all what they're using today. Um, did you was it was, in the time when you were the GM? Was it just starting to enter? Because I know the Cardinals are one of the most advanced teams in terms of, of doing those analytics. I don't know if back in the in the eighties and not early nineties that they were actually doing it then. But uh, you must be want to have some opinions about what how analytics are even used right now. Well, sure. You you uh, you have all clubs using these uh, the analytics situation, uh, and it, it's necessary. Uh, but uh, you know, I also I'm kind of old school in that I still believe uh, it's kind of nice to have a great scouting staff with your scouts scattered across America, watching both high school and college kids, and then uh, watching uh, all the the uh, pro teams play. Uh, so I, I think you have to have a combination of the two, really, Ira. Uh, to have things work out well for you in the uh, in the late 60s uh, uh, you know we didn't have that uh, much there this the uh, statistics part of it was um, not that much you look back at at uh, clubs yearbooks you know they're real thin they might be 10 12 15 pages now the yearbooks of all these teams are 200 pages with every kind of stat you can mention and uh so the data is more available now, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, yeah, in, in my tenure as uh, general manager with the Cardinals, we were uh, involved in analytics uh, a great deal. Um, but we still relied on our scouting staff, our coaches, uh, et cetera, because uh, you, I, I think you have to have both. The The stats will tell you a great deal about people and and uh, give you a good uh projecting uh, skills uh, to use you use that stuff to get good projections but uh, I still like always like to be able to call up Freddie McAllister my scouting director who I'd send out to look at a player and and uh, I'd call him up and uh, if he'd tell me now this this kid can't play a lick um, <laughs> you know I thought that was a pretty good indication and I took that over what whatever analytics or stats we might have had on the kid and if he told me a kid could play, um, I like that even more if it agreed with all the uh, stats and analytics that we had on him. So I think you have to have both. And uh, I'm sure all clubs are going at it uh, big time now. Uh, of course, the, uh, it's just, you know, this is a computer age, and uh, it's awfully easy to uh, compile stats upon stats uh, to uh, 
make evaluations, and um, I'm I'm sure it's really good to have uh, that information along with the uh, scouting reports that you get. And then one of the big biggest changes, uh, clearly in baseball, from when you were playing and being the general manager, and to today, is the pitching. Uh, and we just talked about Bob Gibson when he was a pitcher, and I just pulled up his stats, and there were years he had. 28 complete games, 28 complete games, 23 complete games. I don't think that there was 28 complete games at all of baseball last year, let alone that Bob Gibson in one year would have 28 games. Just the use of the pitchers now, uh, talk a little bit how they're not starters don't go more than five, six innings. Sometimes now they're starting games with relievers. Um, just the changing in the pitching in terms of what it is. I mean, you also play with Capish Hunter, who, again, had a lot of complete games uh, also. Yeah, well, as, as you just said, uh, it's a different era. Uh, today, uh, they, they sign these young boys out of uh, primarily college and pay them uh, a ton of money, <clears throat> you know, a lot of money to uh, uh, come come through the system, come through the minor leagues, and uh, they don't want to take a chance on uh, on hurting a kid, hurting a an arm after they've invested a lot of money in him, so they uh, put up. Uh, 100 pitch limit on or something for the starters and uh, I'm not sure I really buy into that because I don't know how a, a young kid is going to going to develop arm strength uh, by uh, that approach uh, as you mentioned Gibson uh, had all those complete games uh, he didn't ever want to come out of a ball game uh, no matter what you know and and uh, red changes of course uh, knew how good he was in the late innings it seems like uh, when he started smelling a victory in the sixth or seventh inning, um, he he just got better and uh, pitched better, and many times would have 170, 180 pitches uh, during a game, and uh, that's unheard of now, of course. And I I believe um, money, uh, like <laughs> the money being the root of of all evil in, uh, in many cases, uh, is is uh, is part of the reason here that these kids are not. Uh, allowed to uh, go beyond the 100 pitch limit uh, when they're young, and then even when they come to the big leagues, they uh, they say no, we don't want them to go, even if they've got a shutout going. Uh, I guess the only reason they they might leave a, a young pitcher in to get past the 100 pitch limit nowadays is if he's got a no hitter or something, you know. And the fans would go berserk if uh, if they took him out. But uh, yeah, it's uh, money money changes things, and money certainly has. Uh, change the game, uh, and particularly from that instance, I think, of the way they use pitchers today. Well, Dow, thank you. Um, one more question. Um, you were known as a great defensive uh, player. Um, I, I was just, one of the stats was that in four World Series appearances, you had 88 chances um, and never had an error, uh, which is uh, pretty amazing at the, at the most highest level uh, in the World Series. The question is, today, there's so much use of shifts. So if you go to a game and you're suddenly seeing the third baseman play where the second baseman should be and everyone's moving their defenses around. Um, talk about a little bit about the, the wave because I know back in the 70s you never saw a shift. And now there's even thought that the Major League Baseball might even ban the shifts. What's your opinion of the shifts and the fact that the defenses are moving around so much during the game instead of not playing the this, this standard positions? Well, I, I, I believe um, managers and uh, the uh, organizations, general managers, have found out that <clears throat> hitters are not going to try to adapt if you do shift on them and uh, position your players where they um, hit the baseball most of the time. If they're pulling the ball constantly, um, you know, guys are going to – this is the era of uh, – also the era of home runs. Guys uh, are getting paid to hit home runs, and they're going to swing uh, – uh, swing for the fences most of the time. You never see uh, any of those guys uh, try to punch the ball the other way when uh, you've only got one infielder on the left side or the right side of the diamond. Um, by, by you know they they just don't do it. Uh, they'd rather take their chances and try to uh, swing for the fences, even though it means uh, many times they're hitting the ball right into the shift. So I don't know. Um, I don't know how the <clears throat> I don't really know how they're going to stop that. I uh, can you uh, legislate that? Can the commissioners say no more shifts? I don't really think that's possible. That's kind of uh, off the wall, you know. Um, 
Abner Doubleday uh, stuck those guys out there the way he put them, but now managers today are moving them around. You have two two uh, two short stops and no second baseman, and a guy up guy at first base maybe over in the hole a little bit, but he still has to get to the bag. So um, I don't I don't know that uh, there's a way to to stop it unless you just say uh, uh, you can't do it. And I can't see the commissioner making that decision. That's kind of uh, kind of off the wall, I think. Um, you're listening to Iron Sports. Um, we're talking to Dow Maxwell, uh, former St. Louis Cardinal, great shortstop, and also general manager of the team. And Dow, uh, one final question is: um, You came from an organization that, when they had a chance to sign Albert Pujols, uh, didn't make that chance for that long-term commitment. And now, and it seems like the Cardinals have been, of anything, one of the smarter organizations in not being uh, signing long-term deals that have hurt the franchise. So they're more flexible. Uh, now there's uh, Machado and Harper are still free agents. Peterson catchers have reported, and the two biggest free agents in the last five years still have not signed a contract. Any idea about about why they haven't signed yet, and uh, any any predictions maybe where they might go? Well, I I know that organizations are are reluctant uh, to uh, you know go ten years. Uh, for somebody, a 10-year contract for who knows how much money. Uh, and both of these fellows uh, are great players and uh, probably deserve to make a big money. But whether it's uh, a 10-year contract might might be stretching it a little bit. I'd, I'd uh, just from the standpoint of injuries, uh, guys getting hurt, it just happens, you know. And, uh, you, know, you know, you pay somebody, uh, I don't know, they're talking 30, 35 million a year. Uh, for for either one of these guys, and and on a one year basis, maybe uh, maybe they're worth it on the, on basis of what they've done and what they can do to help a ball club uh, reach uh, uh, playoffs and World Series. But uh, awfully tough to commit uh, four hundred million dollars or so uh, to a guy for ten years. So I I really don't I don't know where uh, Harper's going to end up, but I wish he'd sign a three year Cardinal. Uh, contract with the Cardinals uh, that would be good if he wanted to you know play for three or four years in St. Louis which he would love uh, if he wants to go there and play for the Cardinals but uh, at a little bit more reasonable number I'm sure uh, the Cardinals would want to talk to him about that well that's good well Dallas I appreciate your time I know it's your birthday so I just want to wish you a happy birthday today um and oh, thank you I, on I, I appreciate that that's a uh, nice of you I uh I'm uh, 80 years old today. Uh, if I'd have known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, again, thank you. Your insight is great. You've, as I said, being a player and from coaching and, to, and, and general managing from off the front office and also on the field, I really love your insight. And I really appreciate you. And we, and we know the Cardinals are – It's just everyone loves the Cardinals in West Palm Beach. Uh, and it's exciting. It's a very exciting time of the year being West Palm because you have four uh, spring, four teams doing their spring training here now. So, but I appreciate you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Want to thank Dal Maxville so much for joining us here on Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, you've had a really busy um, week. <laughs> you've been all over the place. You're in LA now. Um, you want to talk about where you were first and foremost before we uh, get to uh, your Dukies, who I believe are back at number one. Well, I I was at I actually got to see the Gonzaga Loyola Marymount game, which we'll talk about in a second, which was great. First time I've ever been to Loyola Marymount. It's actually a semi historic arena, um, and I got to see Gonzaga, who is now the number two team. So in the space of a week, I've seen Virginia Duke, which is one and two. I saw those last week, and then I saw Gonzaga this week. So I've seen the top three teams in the country. Um, I don't know how many other people saw them both live. And then I walked the Genesis Open, uh, which everyone has been talking about, uh, and I'm totally, totally exhausted. It was the hardest, uh, I would say, three days to walk. And anybody who says, well, Tiger's getting old and things like that, it doesn't. It, Justin Thomas is a lot younger than Tiger, and you saw what happened to him. And Jordan Spieth shot an 80. So it was one of the, the hardest conditions, I think, ever for uh, these golfers. And you can see the final round scores. And the people who say, well, Tiger could have done better and those things. I, I walked that. It was one of the most difficult tournaments uh, for these players. And it was, but it was great. It was so exciting to be out there at Riviera Country Club. So I got that for three days or four days of that and the uh, basketball. 
I can't wait to talk about both of those. But first and foremost, um, Duke had an interesting week and interesting game against Louisville uh, earlier in the week. Tell us about it. I, just an amazing, just one of these games that they were. Duke was saying, "Let's make this deal. Uh, we're going to give with Louisville. Louisville's a top twenty team, so they go to Louisville and say, how about this? We're going to put uh, Zion Williamson with four fouls with twelve minutes to go, and then with nine minutes to go, nine minutes to go, we're going to give spot Louisville twenty three points. Now, can how's that work? And then we're just going to Duke's just going to come back and win the game. I mean, that was what that's what Duke did. They were down twenty three points in a game with nine minutes to go. Yeah, I thought they had no shot. There's a shot clock of 30 seconds. All Louisville had to do was like dribble the ball up, not shoot for 30, and they could turn the ball over. They probably still would have won the game. But that was, it was without a doubt, that those final minutes of the game were amazing. Um, Louisville turned the ball over. They had nine turnovers in the last six minutes of the game. Zion Williamson, uh, if there's any doubt about his greatness, just go back and watch that. I mean, he had with six minutes to go, hit a three-point play. Louisville made a turnover. Um, he forced another turnover. Uh, he made another steal, was fouled, and made another three-point play. Not three-point shot, whereas he was dribbling and fouled and shot the ball. Then he had another steal and then and, th- and made a great pass to R.J. Barrett. Uh, with um, you know, it was just absolutely it was tremendous. Even with four minutes to go, uh, they were they were still down the game by twelve points. And Zion just kept scoring and scoring and stealing the ball. Uh, and uh, Louisville was up with 330 to go nine points. And then Barrett got forced to turn over. And, uh, but then Cam Reddish hit a three with a minute 30 to go, made it 69-69. And then Reddish got two foul shots uh, at the end of the game. But Zion finished with 27 points, 12 rebounds, three steals. But the most important thing was his ability to make those steals at the end of the game and just turned it was amazing louisville is a good team and they look like a high school team that was overmatched they were turned they had as i said nine turnovers in the final six minutes of game uh duke just turned up they went to another level and if they can play an entire game with that intensity and i think they can uh they're just unbeatable and that was but it was like for them to be down 23 it's an embarrassment that they were down that many points but they showed the talent level they have to be able to beat a team like that. I, it was the, I think, second back, biggest comeback in the history of Coach K's team uh, to come back. And I, again, it wasn't they were just down 23. They were down 23 with nine minutes to go in the game, um, which, which means that they almost had to score every time they touched the ball and had to force a turnover, and, uh, force a turnover or have Louisville miss a shot. And uh, just great defense and great offense and just a very exciting game. You know, Ira, my phone was going nuts. You know, friends of mine, it's like, are you watching what's happening right now? I mean, this team is just incredible. Zion is just amazing as well. He had a block in that game that, I mean, I think he's still ascending. It's just absolutely ridiculous how they play and how they managed to pull that win out. They did have a loss to Tennessee earlier this year. Tennessee lost to a very good Kentucky team. Um, do you think this hurts Tennessee? Are you taking this like to Tennessee? Everyone's allowed to have a bad night, but they got beat badly by Kentucky, and I don't know if people around the league think they're even a number one seed for the tourney anymore. Well, I think we're, I think Kentucky now is looking like they're the team. I mean, right now, I think Tennessee had that. Where it's just gonna be interesting how the SEC tournament pans out. But they didn't have. They lost by seventeen to Kentucky. Kentucky. This is a weird Kentucky team between Keldon Johnson as a freshman, but then PJ Washington, the sophomore, is playing well. I think the key for Kentucky this year, a little bit different years past, they only shot thirteen threes. They were five of thirteen on fifty three shots. The problem Kentucky has in the past is they just go and shoot. It's like the NBA All-Star game where everybody was just shooting threes all the time. I think when Kentucky can run their offense and run plays and don't just shoot threes all the time, I think that's a, they're a better team. I'm telling you, I think uh, Calipari is at coaching. This might be his best job of coaching in terms of the team seems to be. It's not, they're not all guaranteed top picks. They're not the Duke team that everyone's picked to be in the top five players in the NBA draft. So they're, they're playing smart. They're playing well. They seem to get along well with each other. And I think it's a bad loss for Tennessee. Look, Tennessee's a very good team. They are going to be either a one or two seed, and they might make it to the Final Four. But it was a great – I think this game was a lot more about what Kentucky is and shows how great Kentucky as a team is um, rather than even Tennessee. So it was a it – but it was a very big win for Kentucky. No, I, I agree. that This is an amazing coaching job because this is a team that, like you said, typically has two guys going in the top ten of the NBA draft. And it's just not the case this year, and they're looking really good good um you know ira i think if you asked people what they think the biggest rivalry in college is 
some people are going to go with, of course, uh, Ohio State and, and uh, Michigan in football. But to me, it's got to be um, Duke and UNC, and they're going to face off this week. Well, I mean, if you want to know if this is a big rivalry, go on StubHub and look what the ticket prices are. Like, if you want to go to Duke, Carolina, do you think you're going to pay like $100, maybe $200 to go to the game? Remember, this is a college basketball regular season game. We're not talking about you cannot get in the arena for under $2,000. That's ridiculous. Thousand dollars for a college basketball game. So that shows you how big this game is and shows you what these teams are. And Duke is ranked first and North Carolina is ranked 10. And typically that's what it is. You have all, they're both in the top 10 all the time. It's a, tr- it's a great rivalry. I was there when Leitner, Hurley, and Hill played against Carolina. I was there when Carolina brought in Antoine Jameson and Vince Carter and Rasheed Wallace and those teams. It is in Cameron. I mean, the rivalry is great when they play at Carolina, but when they're in Cameron, it is. It's just intense. Now, remember, the campuses are so close to each other. They are actually intertwined. The basketball players live in the some complexes that are off campus that both Carolina yeah. Duke basketball players live in the same complex. So everybody knows each other. The Duke fans, the Duke kids go to North Carolina on Chapel Hill uh, on Franklin Street, and that's where they go for partying. And it's the same thing. So everybody knows each other. The two best teams in the country. The rivalry is great every year. They each have tremendous programs that won multiple, multiple national championships. And this year's going to be no difference. And I think everyone with the Duke, with being number one in the country, uh, Wednesday night, it's just going to be a classic game. But, you know, it's interesting. ESPN got ESPN2. When, when ESPN2 first came out, I remember not many people like knew where ESPN2 was. Now everybody does. But what they did was they actually put the Duke-Carolina game with ESPN2 so people would have to find it because it was probably the most watched college basketball game of the year. And so they actually put it on ESPN2 for a number of years to get people to ESPN2, and it was always the, the staple on that. But I re- the, the games have been tremendous. It's, it's the must-watch college basketball game of the year. I don't care if you hate Duke or hate Carolina. It is a great game. There's going to be NBA players all over the court. It's going to be a fun game. The crowd is, I, again, it's, I've been to so many environments. I'll say the loudest have been has been Cameron, Purdue, Carolina. The fans are there an hour before the game. An hour, the place is packed. Everyone's screaming uh, the whole time. It's, there's no sitting down. There's no deadline. I have never seen it so loud. You cannot hear. You have to have, and it's only a small arena. It's 9,000 people. But remember, it's very small. It's going to get hot. Um, and it's just a great, it's a great visual for television. It's great to be there. It is the rivalry game. Usually we wait till the end of the show, but you going to make it out there? No, that not this. I want I want to go to see Duke play at home this year. I think the Wake Forest game will be the game I want to get. The Duke Duke will play Wake Forest in two weeks because I would like to see Zion. I've seen them play. Now I saw them play Virginia and at Pitt, so I've seen two away games. But I would love to see Duke play. But no, I cannot make it this year for this one. Seven thirty one. It's Ira on sports. This is ninety five nine, the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So I I think if you say Loyola to somebody, they're going to assume Chicago. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Maryland. I know that there's a, a Loyola in Maryland as well. I don't think many people are going to think of Los Angeles when they think of the, the word Loyola as far as colleges go. But Loyola Marymount is there, and you were there last week. Yeah, um, Gonzaga was playing at Loyola, and there's a couple things. First of all, it is, it is neat to go there because it's right between – it's sort of it, – it's very close to where the Genesis played because it's in the uh, – it's in the Pacific Palisades. It seats 4,000 people, and the, the L.A. basketball arenas have the seats, like the concessions are outside the stadium. Like you get your concessions, and then you walk in the stadium. They don't sell the concessions in the stadium. So you're literally outside getting your food to go back in. It is really a glorified high school gym, 4,000 people. It is a low ceiling, but it's really loud. <laughs> There's no uh, seats behind the basket. So it's just it looks like a high school gym. Anyone who goes to high school games sees that. And... Um, it was really exciting to be there. Uh, it, the, the history of Loyola is that back in 85, 86, um, Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball played at USC, and then they transferred to Loyola after the freshman year. For three years, they led the nation in scoring under Paul Westhead. They were the most exciting team to watch. Um, scoring all the time. Hank Gathers averaged 33 points and 14 rounds his junior year. Kimball averaged 35 points his senior year. <laughs> and what... And what um, the horrendous part of the story is that Gathers uh, had a heart condition during the season, which was that they were able to diagnose, but he didn't take his medicine, and then he actually collapsed in, the, in, a, in a playoff game uh, at, that, in the, at the arena and died on the court. And Eric Spolstra, who is the coach of Miami Heat, he was there at the game. He played on the Loyola Marymount team. 
when that happened. And so he saw that, and that's one of the reasons why he felt people felt he did not want to put Chris Bosh or play Chris Bosh because he actually saw a player die on the court, a superstar player die on the court, and was sympathetic in terms of like I didn't want that ever to happen on my watch again or uh, with it. So it was amazing. But it was um, it, they they honor Hank Gathers throughout the arena. There's his pictures everywhere. They call it Hank's house. Um, just a, it was very exciting to, to be there at that place. And they were pumped. I mean, they're playing the number three team in the country. So they were hoping to, they were a 19-point underdog. And Gonzaga, the interesting, it's the first time I ever saw Gonzaga play live. And from 97-99, they had a coach called Dan Montz. And he went to the Elite Eight. And then he left to Minnesota. And then Mark Few took over. And in 20 years, his record is 535-118. games. They made the NCAA tournament 18 straight years. They've been like a low seed, like a two, three. They're not just some Cinderella anymore. They're, they're, they're either a one, two, or three seed almost every single year. Um, weird about their schedule is that they play, they typically play, they beat Duke this year. Um, they lost to Syracuse, but they, uh, uh, but, and they lost to North Carolina. But they usually play some good teams at the beginning of the year, but they play this, world, this West Coast conference which is pretty easy there's st mary's is a team in that uh loyola's in that but they win they won every game by like they won now i think since december 18th they won 18 straight games by double digits and now they're number two in the country they're not going to lose i mean they're either they're probably going to be duke will probably be one and duke and Gonzaga will be two they'll be a number one seed going to the tournament and they have this guy ru hashimaro six eight from japan a top 20 player brandon clark is another top 20 player um, and they're, they're exciting to watch. I don't think, as I've watched Duke Live, Virginia, like, I don't know. I'm not sold that they are the number two team in the country. Um, they are going to be number two. They're going to be one seed. But I don't, they, they, just, they don't shoot the ball well enough. And I know they beat Duke, but I was in Hawaii. And I, and I think that now they play these they, all this time without these tough competitions. I think when they start going and playing really big-time games, I think they're going to be not upset, but I do think a team like Duke, I, I'm sure Duke wants to play them again, uh, would, would probably beat them. But it, they ended up winning by 13 over Loyola. Um, but it was close. It was close. At halftime, they were only, only up one point. But it was a great to be there, great to see the environment. And it's great when you sat there. I sat like five rows up, uh, $60 in a court, uh, $60 to sit five rows up center court. Uh, very fun game, and you can see everything. So I actually loved going to the game. Ira, you know, speaking of going to things, just watching the Genesis on TV was exhausting. <laughs> watching these guys, you know, go around just a, a you know a soaking wet course. It, it didn't look fun to play. Yet you went out there and were there all four days. I'm not surprised. Tell us about uh, what you took in at the Riviera. Well, we're going to go over a couple of things about Genesis. First is. I went there Wednesday to the Pro-Am. Then I didn't go Thursday because it rained. It rained and they didn't even play. They only played a couple holes. And then Friday I went out just late in the afternoon. But then Saturday from like 6 in the morning till 5.30 at night. And then Sunday the same thing. I was out there. And I, it was, first of all, the course was wet the entire time. And it's this type of grass they brought in from Africa, which makes it when it's wet, it, it is a heavy grass to walk in. And so it's hard. And also it was cold. And that's one thing I think maybe people understand. It's like, L.A., it's great, it's so warm, everybody's having a good time. It was like, it was like 48, 50 degrees, and it was windy, cold, and rainy. And then it wasn't like on Thursday and Friday, it just rained real hard. But then these other days, it would like rain, and then it would get sunny again, and then it would rain again. And if you watch the players, I think the other thing that was hard is that I know when it's hot, it's like 100 degrees at some of these tournaments, that they look, they look like they're sweating and they're tired. But it's hard when you're wearing all this rain gear on. They're all wearing like four different levels of rain gear. Tiger was playing with like a knit hat on his on his hat. Now I don't know if they showed that on TV, but he was. But it was, and you could see that it was the, the it was freezing. I mean, these people there. It was a very cold in LA. It's just a, a 50 degrees LA is is much colder than 50 degrees Florida. Um, and uh, it was just a hard course. And it was, and then the, the timing. These players because Thursday was washed out. They had to go play on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They're doubling up the entire time. And, and, um, some, and Justin Thomas played 30, well, 18 and 14, like 32 holes on, on Sunday. The leaders did. And it was, such a, it was so weird because they didn't even have Tiger played with the same competitors every single uh, for, the, for both all day Saturday and all day Sunday because they couldn't reset the field. Um, it was just everything was backed up. 
and the players were tired. And I, I think when people are saying, well, Tiger's old, it's just, as I said, Jordan Spieth shot an 80, Justin Thomas collapsed there. Look at the putts he missed going down the wire. People were, they were tired. Um, and J.B. Holmes is just, was able to survive and, and, and win this. But it was, it was really one of the hardest. And it's one of those things where people said, well, the, the thought was, that Tiger and Rory and these other golfers would play this tournament, World Golf Championship, and then go to the Honda Classic the next week. Well, there's no way. I mean, I mean I'm tired. My feet are killing me, and I just was walking around. <laughs> there's no way that these guys are going to go and play World Golf in Mexico and then fly all the way, all the way back. Uh, to uh, fly all the way back to uh, 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 to the Honda and play in Florida. I know Justin Thomas is still set to do it, but I don't know. I mean, Justin Thomas looked like a guy that I think if he had a choice not doing the Honda, wouldn't. And we'll see how he does after the World Golf Championship. But there's really only for the Honda right now, the big names are Bruce Brooks Kapka and Rick T. Fowler, who did not play in the Genesis, and then Justin Thomas. And then uh, Fleetwood also played, but it, it, it played it here but, uh, in Genesis. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's no way the Tiger or Rory. They, haven't, you know, they have a week before the tournament to commit to come, but I can't see either one of them going. There's just, it would be crazy because they, they were exhausted from this. No, it's funny, and I knew we talked about it on the show and in private. Once we saw how the new schedule was going to be for this year, it was going to be tough for the Honda to draw some of these bigger players. And now we're seeing it, especially with a grueling, grueling event uh, just two weeks before that. I think maybe Justin Thomas does stay committed um, just because of the Ricky Fowler connection, you know, them being buddies, they can go hang out. Uh, I don't think he's going to care if he makes a cut or not. He'll take the weekend off, but uh, I'm hoping (laughs) that Justin Thomas uh, descends on PGA National. Ira, I know you've... um, um, you've been to you've been to Riviera a ton of times, but if we're not familiar, tell us about the course itself. Well, what's neat about it is it's in Malibu and Brentwood and Santa Monica. Um, there's been it's called it used to be called the LA Open, which is pretty cool. Um, and they hosted the U.S. Open in 1948 and in, and the PGA Championships in '83 and '95. Um, and they've had a lot of members there. Like Humphrey Bogart was been a member, Dean Martin, Walt Disney. So like it's one of those tournaments clubs that has a lot of celebrity people. Uh, ben Hogan is famous for this because he won the LA Open three times and he won the US Open in 48. Surprisingly, Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods have never won this tournament. It's for some reason, and Tiger has played it a fair amount of times, but he has never, he has never won the tournament. Um, there's no water on the course at all. None. Zero. There's, not a, there's nothing there's, except the water on the, on the fairways. But um, the first hole, what's distinctive about the Riviera is the clubhouse. It is so beautiful, and it sits right up on a hill. So when you tee off on one, you go right up to the clubhouse, and then you, they hit down, and that's a really good hole. And then the, there's, there's two par th- There's the 14. I always remember this because the 4 and 6 and the 14 and 16 are the par 3s. And then 1, 11, and 17 are the par 5s. So it's a par 71 for the course. Um, and the sixth hole is a par three, and it's neat because you go right by these houses. And that's what's really amazing about the uh, Riviera. And they're building even more houses up there, is that it's rung by, I would say, 60, 70 amazing, like $20, $30 million houses. So you're in a valley, and you're looking right up, on, uh, and it's more a ravine, I guess. And then you're looking up at all these uh, homes that are beautiful, all ringing all around the course. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Then the eighth hole is weird. It has two fairways. So when you go down eight, you can either go on the left side or the right side. Um, then the tenth hole is like when they go back, it doesn't start like where the first does, but that's a pretty neat hole in terms of starting. And they were starting out sometimes in the tenth and at one. And then uh, the eleventh is cool. It's this, it's this par five and Tiger. That's where he had his great shot the other day. But it has eucalyptus trees on both sides. It seems like going for like 400 yards of eucalyptus trees. So it's really, really pretty. And, uh, and then I love the par three. The 16th hole has these special trees, and you hit right through the trees and go in. It's, it's, it's great. And then the finishing 18 is, just, is the one where you just – from 17 to 18, you're walking uphill because you end up right where the clubhouse is, but you're just going up the entire time. <laughs> the caddies are dying when they're carrying their – uh, clubs up there, but it's beautiful that, that you can see on TV with the with the amphitheater of the 18th green, and then the the country the uh, clubhouse, and then every all the stands around there. So it's it's really a great great it's one of the best finishing holes in all of golf. So I I love that I love the I love the course. It's a great course to walk. Uh, typically, when it's not pouring down rain and uh, and wet and cold and everything like that. Ira, you always seem to have funny stories about how you acquire your tickets <laughs> to, to these events. Any, anything out of the ordinary this time? 
I, I will have to say is that I want to give props to the Honda a little bit, but this tournament cannot, like, I'm there and you want to, anyone who goes to these golf tournaments knows you want to have all your tickets. So I'd like, I went there and I'm like, I'm trying to buy Sunday tickets. I had my Friday tickets. We can't print Sunday out. There's a mistake. So then you go out and you don't want to show up. Like if you show up early in the morning, you don't want to wait to buy your tickets. You just want to have your tickets. They are, you couldn't even buy a ticket for the event there. They kept saying, go online to buy it. But then if you have it on your phone, the cell service was horrendous. You're in a, you're in anybody who tries to call me, I'm trying to send pictures out. I can't, there's no cell at all. There's no nothing. The Wi-Fi, cell service, everything is terrible. So you couldn't, so I wasn't going to trust put it online, but you couldn't even buy the ticket. And I was like, they're like, well, we realize you have a problem. I go, I don't think saying that because I want to buy a ticket for Sunday. When you have tickets available, that's not my problem. That's like, I just want to buy a ticket. And they made you actually go outside the, the course, buy a ticket and then go through security again to come back because they wouldn't even sell the tickets there. So I thought that was just, uh, and they really don't have enough scoreboards there. It was hard to follow what was going on. It's a, it, I just cannot believe they don't make it more fan-friendly. Uh, the Honda seems to have a scoreboard on every hole, and it's just, of course, they, oh, the, the other thing was that they closed the ticket booth at 4.30 at, when you walk out. So if you're like, the, you, the tournament was going until 5.30, 6 o'clock. So if you're leaving, the ticket booth is closed. You can't even buy tickets for the next day. So I thought that was uh, very interesting. That is a little bit strange. Again, this is Ira on Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. It's 7.44. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, I always say Wednesdays at golf tournaments, my favorite day. Uh, it's the Pro-Am, the practice round, and you got to check it out with Tiger. Oh, I'm telling you, I say this to everybody. I don't know why they don't. I mean, Tiger... If you want to see Tiger Woods, you go to his pro-am. He tees off at like 6.30, 6.40. There's usually nobody who wants to get up that early. Just wake up early and go and watch him because the crowd on Wednesday was so small. I could not believe. Like last year he played with Mark Wahlberg, but they didn't even put him with a star. So I was asking the people around. So I talked to the wife of one of the guys Tiger was playing with. I'm like, well, how did he get to play at this pro-am? I mean, there's Tiger and three other guys. And they go, he won a poker tournament two years ago at the country club and they owed him for the winning the poker tournament. And this, and this is their payment. I'm like, wow. I mean, that would be a great payment to be able to play a round of golf with Tiger. You got to learn to play poker so now. I actually, we might actually have this guy on. He, he couldn't come on this week on the show, but we might actually have him on next week or the following week uh, to talk about playing the round with Tiger. But uh, it was, it was, it was just great. Um, Jared Goff, uh, the uh, LA Rams was there with uh, Whitworth, their uh, offensive lineman. So they were, following Tiger. Tiger was talking to them. Uh, Jake Olson, who was the blind uh, player who played at USC, was with his dog. And, and, and Tiger was great. Tiger was stopping, talking to people. He was talking to Goff. He talked to Olson. He's a big fan of Olson. Uh, Olson's dog and Tiger, they, I have a great picture of them like kissing each other. Um, and, uh, it was, and he was playing with the dog. It was great. And it was just nice. Tiger is, this is a totally different Tiger, much more relaxed. And he's talking to everybody in the proms. He's laughing. He's joking. Uh, and it's very engaging. Even the other golfers, he was, uh, he was having a good time. Uh, the part, the 10th hole has something I never have seen ever. So there was a, they were playing music and it was so loud. And I'm like, well, they're going to stop the music when they tee off. They didn't. And not even, they even had a rapper start to rap, like make up songs. Like this is Tiger Woods. He's the host of the tournament. He's like, and he's really good. And, he, and I'm like, well, he'll stop before Tiger tees off. He kept his rap going the entire time while Tiger was teeing off. Then he did it for the other guys, too. And then I saw him like do it for Whitworth and, and the other celebs. And it was like funny. And Tiger was like laughing about it. And it was cool. I mean, I never would expect Tiger like eight years ago would have allowed a rapper. And this is his own tournament. Remember, this is the tournament that he, he sponsors. So, um, and this has become important. I, I wanted to add this one point that there's now these three super tournaments that Bay Hill, which is Arnold Palmer, Memorial, which is Jack Nicholas's tournament, and now Tiger's made the Genesis his tournament. They're going to pay more money. It's not really, it's more of an invitational, not an open, and there's smaller fields and more money. And that's going to hurt the Honda because what it is is Genesis comes this week. The World Golf is after that, the Honda, and then Bay Hill, which pay more. So the point is that these, it's going to be hard for the Honda because now they're sandwiched between the World Golf and the two and the, and the Bay Hill and now the Tigers tournament in Los Angeles. But it was, uh, it was, uh, it was great. And the other thing about it is, I watched Tiger fall these. I didn't look, he, he got tired, but you, I remember watching him even last year uh, when he played with Wahlberg, he was nervous about his back. You could see he was a little tentative on picking the ball up. 
there is no tenant. He looks great. He was walking around well on Wednesday. Uh, I never saw him like grimace about his back or anything like that. I mean, he was he was fine. It looked it, it totally different from a one year ago when he came back in Genesis last year to this year at the pro am. All right, Iris. Let's get into the actual. Uh, let's get into the actual tournament. I love golf. You know that. I talk about it on this show all the time. Um, just looking at this course on TV, it looks ridiculously hard. I mean, silly things like bunkers in the middle of the green on, I believe it's the sixth hole. It's it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, and that's why these guys struggle. I was surprised J.B. Holmes uh, shot 17 under. Well, I, on Thursday, what happened, made it, I think they made a terrible decision on Thursday. It was going to pour the whole day. Now, you don't say, you only say, do they play? Well, they don't stop golf tournaments unless there's uh, lightning. But when you get when the course is totally flooded, then they would play, and you could see them. It was just monsoon that was coming in L.A. Uh, and uh, and it went the whole. It was going. It rained all Wednesday night into Thursday. I can't believe they went out and tried to play. Uh, one, they had some people out there playing a hole. It was one of the first times in like 10 years that the, that the PGA wiped out the hole, saying it really wasn't fair. Mickelson went out there and played one hole, and then they make him. That's, what, again, why this tournament was so hard. Why in the world would they have the golfers tee off at 7 in the morning and then just for, get warmed up, get everything, play in the rain, and then take it out? So they actually wiped out their scores. And then they had some people come in the afternoon and play a couple of holes in the afternoon. Tiger didn't even play on Thursday afternoon, but came out on Friday and played all those, played all those holes on Friday. Um, but Tiger's grouping was, was Justin Thomas and Rory McIlroy. And that's the one I followed with. I, I caught them at the end of Friday and watched them at the end of Friday. And then, uh, in terms of, uh, of going down. So, you know, definitely Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas and Tiger Woods. Can't get much uh, better than that. But it was, it was pouring on Friday. I mean, it was, I had my Steeler jacket on uh, with a hood, but the heavy one for like I wear when it's zero degrees. And I was still cold and getting soaked. It was raining so hard. So I'm coughing right now because it was just pouring down rain. And that's why I give Tiger such credit. Now, Tiger made a statement that Justin, he thought Justin Thomas, because Justin Thomas was hitting these shots like within like an inch of a hole, like through the rain. And Tiger's was the most amazing performance he's ever seen in terms of how well he played on that Friday in the rain. And I agree, uh, he, played, he played great. But that Friday was just, both Thursday and Friday were total washouts, and that was, uh, that was very exciting. Let's talk a little bit more about the tournament itself and how things went. You know, at one point, uh, we were actually texting, and it was on Sunday, and I'm like, Justin Thomas can't lose this. He, he can't blow this. He's too good of a golfer to be let. You know, Tiger was ten strokes behind him at that point, and I, I really thought he was going to wrap it up. It just wasn't the case. Well, on Saturday, Tiger see he finished his round. His round, okay. And what what people didn't know if the cut was going to be even or one. And he and on the ninth, he finished. I I ran out there on Saturday to catch him at four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And then he got in the, so he had to finish a second round in the morning and he got minus one. Now the cut ended up being even, which was a really good help for him. And so of course, but that was where, but it could have been, if he didn't birdie nine, he might've missed the cut. And then I jumped the rest. And then I watched Mickelson and Spieth finish their round two. And Mickelson played, and Spieth played great. So I watched them play about 13 holes. I was taking tons of pictures of those guys. And I, I became such an expert at Riviera. The key at this Riviera, I'm going to say this again, in the Honda to some extent too, is that you have to always realize it's, you have to stay. You can lag the golfers to get the pictures and take the pictures. When they go to the greens, you have to get ahead because if you get stuck at that green, you're not. You can't go to the next hole. So I'm always at the other side of the green to make sure that they because they have to have an entrance. It looks saying where will the golfers walk and where do they put the ropes up? Otherwise, you're locked and not going there. So you actually have to go to the back of the green and still have a good spot to see everything. But you can't just be like, oh, I'll stand on this side of the green and not think it right. Otherwise, you will miss them tee off the next hole and then you'll be like chasing them the entire time. So I, I became, I think, an expert at how to like, I know where we have to stand on the green in order for me then to go to the next hole. And that was uh, exciting. But then Tiger started. So the exciting thing about Saturday was, uh, was, was round three. When Tiger started that, he was minus one. So he goes to 10 and gets a birdie. He was five feet of the hole. And then at, on the, on the uh, par, uh, par five 11th, he hit his first shot 290 yards down those eucalyptus trees. And then he had 250 yards right to the green at like a few feet away for Eagle. I mean, that could have been in there. It could have been an albatross where it bounced. It was just amazing. And then so he has an Eagle, birdie and Eagle. Then on, on, 
on 12, he put, he, uh, he got, he got, he got another birdie. So it was a 24 foot putt. People were going nuts is now it's like birdie, eagle, birdie. And then on 13, he put another 10 foot putt for a birdie. So everyone's going nuts. The wars were great. It's in the afternoon. It's what everybody's out there watching. People were just going nuts. And he, so he went from one under to seven under really fast. He parred 14, 15, and 16. And then, uh, and then it was interesting is that they, they, on 17, this, he was playing with Peter Maltinotti and Cody Gribble. Gribble. It, 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 these are not, they were like bit players in the part. And Cody, I, fortunately, he was not too well. He was shot like 80 the last two holes, two, uh, two days. But, um, he like, they wanted to get that 17 in or as much as he could before his darkest. So Tigers whispered him and says, go tee off. And he like literally ran to the 17th tee box and like hit the ball really fast so they could get the, once it because that's when they blow, they can't, the horn, they can still continue to play. But, um, so Tiger was really, I mean, he was set, uh, in terms of what a great ending and in terms of around in, in on Saturday, but then on Sunday, so that's what made it hard, though, was on Sunday he comes back there and he started on 17 and he got it and he knew exactly the stroke. He, he played 17 up until the green and then stopped and then he parred that. And then uh, I think the tournament for Tiger, and I know this sounds, uh, 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 um, uh, oh, no, then he went on, he went on 18 and, uh, and, and, then, and, then, and then on one he hit an eagle. So he was actually amazing. And then uh, he, at that point, after one, he was only five shots back of, of Justin Thomas. And then he uh, got a birdie uh, on three. He, but see, three, four, five, and six, these were just tapping pars. And seven, it was unbelievable. Like he, Tiger says, I never putted like this ever. He was so close to putting. And they weren't, like he was putting for birdies, and they were like 15-foot putts and 16-foot putts and 12-foot putts, but they were just missing for birdies. He wasn't even doing any par saves at all. And uh, even nine, he should have, he should have, he should have birdied it. Um, But it was, but when he finished up that round, it was total chaos. Nobody knew where round four sparked because they wanted to get it in because their goal was to get the tournament. So Tiger finishes round three. Everyone else is finishing. Everyone's all messed up. They didn't just like reset it where they go. No one, they were taking, some people were coming off from 10. Some were starting at one. Um, they were lucky that the leaders were Thomas and, and Holmes because they didn't reset the scores. I mean, that's what Tiger played with Gribble, who was in last place the entire time. So um, they, didn't, they didn't reset the groups. It was really weird how they were scrambling, and nobody knew where the whole comments, where's Tiger teeing off, where's Tiger teeing off. No one knew it was going to be 1 or 10, what time it was going to happen, and he really had no break. A lot of times you have these tournaments where they play in the morning and then they have maybe a couple-hour break. He literally went out another, like, 30 minutes later, he's out now playing. He just did um, uh, 10 holes, and now he's out playing another 18. And that then began uh, round four. Yeah, so go ahead and tell us about round four. I mean, he was never going to be in contention to win this, and I didn't think he finished all that bad, you know, compared to the rest of the field. Well, I'm telling you, I, I have read everything about the Genesis, and I'm going to give you the analysis of what happened and why he, and why he lost. He started out um, he start, he started out 12, seven under. And at 10, on 10, he birdied it every, every he birdied 10 each three rounds, but then he put it for birdie and wasn't able to make it. On 11, which he was, got the eagle before, um, he actually birdied that to go eight under. And then at 12, he, uh, he missed, but then he, he, it was an amazing shot. He was right behind a tree. It was a pull shot. We're not talking about hitting a roof round. He was on the green. There's this tree that sits right on the green. He hit the ball like you would see like a Mazeroski pool or the Miz or whatever, that one pool guy. I could not believe the shot. I mean, I saw it on TV. I still can't understand how he was able to like loop the ball around the, the, ball around the tree in order to, to get a par on that, which is pretty amazing. And then, uh, but then on 14, he hit the whole ball, the ball within just a few feet of the hole for a birdie. So he's at minus nine on 14, 15 another par, and then 16 was great. So he, I'm down on 16. He comes and he goes into the sand trap, and, he, and everyone's like, wow, let's go for it, go for it. And this is a really hard chip. He chipped it in, and then he gets to go, to go nine under. And it was like everyone at that point was just going crazy at 16 that he was able to chip it in. And then, uh, then 17 – that's a par five, which he could have eagled, and he just missed. He almost missed an eagle, and then he just I mean, he chipped in for the, to get an eagle, and he could have got a birdie. So he's on a roll. I mean, he was really ready to go right there, but then it all fell apart on 18. And what happened was is that he hit the ball 
right in the Texas hot dog stand, right on the side, which was a bad shot to verse part. But, and I'm standing there, I got a great, one of the best pictures I've ever had is Tiger hitting out of that. And he had an amazing shot to come right on the green. So he goes there now for his third shot and he's ready to go. And at the same time, this guy, Peter Maltotti, who is the other golfer, he comes right up to me and I'm on the side. He goes, have you seen my ball? And I look, wait, you're playing. Like he's asking me, there's tons of fans. And I'm like, I'm like, no, I haven't seen it. And then fans are looking, he couldn't find his ball. And so he's looking, looking, looking. And finally, Tiger, who's on the hill on 18, overlooking the green, has to walk down the hill and walk around the ball. Now, the old Tiger would have just said, look, I'm playing a golf tournament. Someone else looked for the ball. So he's helping this golfer. But this is a new, improved Tiger. He's helping him look. And I think that's hard enough because they had to walk down the hill, walk down the other part of the hill, look for the ball. They finally found it. And that took, like, it seemed like 10 minutes, so probably like five to seven minutes. But then he had to go walk back up the hill again. So there's like two hills that he had to walk up to. And then he ended up bogeying 18. I think that's just totally tired him up. Uh, and then, and that was just, it was a, just a mess. And then on one, he, uh, on two, he had a terrible drive. He hit behind a car and they had to get out of that. And it was just, he was scrambling. He finished with a, with a six under, but at that point, I think if he would have been able, if he was, he could have been like an 11 or 12 right there at 18. Uh, he would have been in contention with, uh, with, with Holmes and Thomas. And McElroy, who was uh, at there, but I think that whole 18 when he had to go look for the golf ball, that was what screwed, that messed him up. And that, you could just see he was so tired walking down the hill. I mean, the last thing when you're tired and you're ready for this really important shot is you don't want to be looking for a golf ball for uh, it looks like 10 minutes on a hill, not just like anything, but going down and going looking at these hills. So I think that's what he ended up minus six. But I do think that uh, I mean, I thought he played great. I like following him. Everyone said, why are you following him with so many strokes out? But then when he finished, then I jumped, and we can you know, talk about that, to Holmes and Thomas, and I saw the last five holes of them, them fighting. Yeah, so why don't we talk about that? Because it, it did turn into a battle. And like I said, I, I really thought Justin Thomas was just going to pull away with this one, Ira. And here comes J.B. Holmes, who's another good golfer. But I just didn't think, you know, Justin Thomas being the player he is, I thought he'd be able to hold on. <laughs> well, they're both Kentucky. It's interesting. Holmes is from Holmes has a, a University of Kentucky bag on, and Justin Thomas is from Louisville. So I have a, my cousin uh, lives in Kentucky, and he's all excited. Two Kentucky guys are battling out for the final, and uh, Thomas was up four shots going into the final round. So it was really his tournament to lose. And on 13, he still had the whole lead the entire time. You look at the, the leaderboard, the few boards that are up there. Thomas is leading. He's at. Um, and then he double bogeys on 13, and then Holmes goes up and takes that. And then on uh, on par on the six on the 16th hole, that's when the Tiger chipped in. Thomas had a seven footer for birdie, which he made. Holmes in was in, was in the sand trap where Tiger was and was able to get out of the sand trap and uh, going up and down. So he still held the the one shot lead. But I loved. What happened on 17? Oh, it was the greatest. So I got to say this. So on 17, Holmes goes to tease. Holmes is known for being a very slow golfer in terms of slow. I don't know if these guys get along. They might get along, but they did not seem to. So Holmes, hit, Holmes hits his shot, and that's it. Well, then Justin Thomas hits the ball, and he goes, oh, yeah. And he twists after he hit on 17. This is a par five. He was like a majorette. And not like when Tiger trolls his club, but it was really like a troll, like a majorette troll on his driver. Like 10 times around, it just kept going and going and going. And he goes, oh, yeah. Well, they walk out. I'm thinking, wow, Thomas is down a stroke. He just hit this great shot. So we walk out to 17. Thomas is in the fairway on the left side, or in the rough, fairway rough. Holmes is 50 yards ahead, like in the middle of the thing. I'm like, what? And he looks back at Thomas like, why were you saying it's such a great shot when I'm 50 yards ahead of you? And then Thomas took forever to make a decision. Like he couldn't decide what he's going to do. It wasn't that really, it wasn't like behind a tree or anything. It was just in the rough. And I was standing next to him deciding, should he pitch out? Should he not this? So finally Holmes got furious and you could see Holmes walk 50 yards back to where Thomas was. I just gave him like a death stare. Like, are you going to hit this or not? We've got to finish this tournament. And then Thomas hit it. And uh, they, he had a chance on 17 to hit. So it ended up, they got on the green. Holmes is putting for an eagle, and Th Thomas is hit, putting for a birdie. But Holmes missed both his part putts, and then Thomas had a chance to tie, but then he missed the seven-foot putt that would have tied it. They go to 18, and uh, I guess Thomas had to have a 20-foot putt to tie, and he did do it. But Holmes hung out for the win. But there were so few people by the time they ended. It's like the crowd around Tiger was enormous, but the, the crowd around Holmes, 
and uh, Thomas was, I, I mean, I was easy for me to take pictures and walk around. So it was really funny. That just shows you the power of Tiger in that he was, uh, but I think people also were tired. It was late uh, and it was cold and people just went home. You know, before we wrap golf up and, and wrap up Iron Sports here on the True Oldies channel, one of the other big stories from the week was Matt Kuchar, and apparently he does he's not the most generous guy on the PGA Tour when it comes to his caddy. Well, I, he won a tournament in Asia and won like a million dollars for the tournament, and he gave his caddy, I guess he was the deal was it was a temporary caddy or just for that day. He was supposed to pay him 3500 and he decided to pay him $5,000. And people are like, well, you know, you really, it should have been more than that in terms of you want all this money. Um, and, uh, and, and so the caddy complained, which really doesn't happen much. And it became a big story, and everyone was talking about it. And understand about something about Matt Kuchar. He is extremely popular. Everyone likes him. They go, Kuch, Kuch. Everyone screams his name. He is so nice to every, all the fans. He has this great reputation. And then the story comes out. You know, I think that some of other golfers, it would have made a big deal. But for a story about Kuchar coming out, I think that, was, that made it poor. And people, like, you could see that he was really it was awkward. People didn't know what to say. I didn't see a lot of catcalling and people saying stuff to him. But everybody was whispering about it. And then he ended up saying, "Okay, I'm going to pay fifty thousand to the, the to the caddy. I'm making donations and all this other stuff." But I mean, I guess the worst thing is to be known that you're cheap, that you didn't want to pay a caddy after you won this tournament. And and there's really no way because actually, when it came to his attention, he said, "I'm not going to pay it. I paid the guy five thousand. That's all he deserves." And uh, and then that was it just made a bad situation ten times worse. And I'm sure his sponsors and everyone else came to him and said, "Look, this is a really bad look." And I think it's something when you look at Kuchar now, it's like people are going to be known for him as like, "Boy, he didn't. He won a golf tournament and gave his caddy five thousand dollars." Yeah, basically fifteen hundred dollar bonus for winning it for him. Ira, before we wrap it up, Antonio Brown, the saga and the drama never seemed to end in Pittsburgh. I think he's done in Pittsburgh, but. What happened this week? He said Big Ben is like feels like he's the owner. Yeah, well, he was look, he was he was he was he he was mad about Ben. He tweeted out again. He had a a press conference where he tweeted it was a complete disaster in terms of again he is like doing using social media to get out of out of Pittsburgh. Um, it has become this huge story, and uh, in the middle of March is when they owe him a roster bonus. I mean, this trade could come down fairly quickly, but it's 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 like I mean, it's as someone who's a big Steelers fan, it's like everyone wants to talk about it. I'm wearing a Steeler hat, and everyone where I walk around, people are saying, "Ask me about Antonio Brown, Antonio Brown." So funny how that goes. We are out of time. Dal Maxville, thank you so much for joining us tonight here on Ira on Sports. Got some great insight from him. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Ira on Sports.